0: The period after the Harlem Renaissance, from 1940 to 1960, is often referred to as the Age of Realism, Naturalism, and Modernism because of its depiction of versimilitude, ideological positions, subjectivities, and aesthetic innovations. Realism is the truthful, unmitigated depiction of ordinary, working-class African American life, especially life in urban areas showing the apparent struggles, problems, conflicts, and deprivations ordinary people faced. Naturalism is a harsher form of realism and ideology that communicates the idea that ordinary African Americans have no free will, are controlled by heredity and the environment, and are doomed to a life of hardships and misery. Richard Wright reigned supreme in this portrayal of ordinary African Americans, whom he calls the masses and represents in a Marxist context. So popular was Wright that writers like Ann Petrie and Chester Himes— who were influenced by his ideology of environmental and social determinism, came to be known as the right school. In addition to realism and naturalism, writers of this period embraced aesthetic modernism and deliberately violated representational conventions by departing from traditional forms, techniques, and subjects of art. Interalia, their often-forbidden subject matter shocked the reading public. Three writers who epitomize this period are Brooks, Wright, and Hansberry. We will use selected poetry by Brooks, Wright's Black Boy, and Hansberry's A Raisin in the Sun to illustrate the period. Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Gwendolyn Brooks is generally recognized as a major writer whose poetry showcases one of the best artistic styles in modernism and social realism. Her poetry explores and defines African-American experiences and presents universal themes. In other words, her poetry has both racial and universal application. Her collections of poetry include the following. First, Kitchenette Building, which explores individuals that endure grim realities, succeeding no less than ordinary people do. Second, The Mother, which explores the complexities and contexts of motherhood and a mother's love for her children, including the dead, unborn, and aborted. And lastly, The Children of the Poor and the Lovers of the Poor which thematizes the various subjectivities and interstices of urban life, deprivations, and quests for the American dream. From the titles alone, one can discern Brooks's gendered concern for women, familial relations, and challenges children and the youth face in urban America within the context of race, class, gender, family, and community. As you read the selected poems by Brooks, Consider how her poetry illustrates the period of realism, naturalism, and modernism in African-American literature. The much-anthologized poem, We Real Cool, for example, gives a realistic account of delinquent and rebellious youth. But is the poem just about delinquent youth, or also about delinquent parents? Where are the parents of these children who quit school, thin gin, sing sin, jazz June, and lead a vampire lifestyle by staying out late? What would they be doing during the daytime when many are off to school, to work, and striving to make ends meet? As Hegel once said, life has value only when it has something valuable as its object. So what is the raison d'etre of life for these children? If none except for bravado and hedonism, are you surprised that they die soon? Who or what is most to blame for their situation? Themselves? Their parents? Society? Perhaps city life? And is this an issue limited to just the city, to the African-American community, or a universal one? Now analyze the style of the poem. What do you find striking about this poem? Note the placement of we, the first-person speakers of the poem. What does the awkward placement of the word we suggest about the speaker's identity? Can they act or function individually without each other? In other words, if we replace the we with I... Can the individual I do what the we do together? Also note the short lineation of the poem. Both the lines and the poem itself are very short. What do these communicate metaphorically and symbolically about the life of the characters? About their morals? About their education? About their involvement in established traditions? About their ability to compete in the world? Also note the poem's sound devices. Without the epigram, this probably is the only poem with spondaic, monosyllabic sounds. Each word, including we, is stressed with just one syllable, or sound for emphasis. It uses internal rhyme, alliteration, assonance, repetition, and rhythm throughout. How do these sound devices communicate a tone of defiance, bravado, and i do not care"ism? Does this tone shift in the last line? Finally, analyze the poem's use of irony, especially situational and verbal ironies. Are the speakers really cool as they perceive themselves, or fools? Are they and their lifestyle attractive? Is the poem a celebration or a lament? What is Brooks' message or theme, and how does she communicate it? Another poem for consideration is The Mother. This controversial poem uses contradictory images and ideas. What is the contradiction between the title and the first line of the poem? Can one who aborts her child be a mother? Who is a mother, according to Brooks, and how does this poem problematize the meaning of motherhood and mother love? Both pro-life and pro-choice groups have championed this poem at different times. What are some of the problems and issues in the abortion debate raised and addressed here? What lines and arguments support each group's position? What is or are the significance of the following? The Damp, Small Pulps, line 3, Gobbling Mother Eye, line 10, and You Never Giggled, line 30. Is this poem directed to the unborn child or to the mother? Who is the you of the first stanza? The universal you? The accusative you? Or an individual musing alone? Compare the first and second stanzas of the poem. The word sweet appears in both stanzas. How does the word mean something different each time? How is the speaker's change in attitude suggested by the change from you to I? How does the rhyme scheme change? How does the poem illustrate realism, naturalism, and modernism? Our next author, Wright, fuses urban realism, literary naturalism, and modernism with Marxist tenets. He expounds his Marxist perspectives in his essay, Blueprint for Negro Writing, which is a response to Du Bois's and Hughes' essays previously discussed. Unlike Hughes, who focused on artistic freedom in response to Du Bois's prescriptive artistic criteria, Wright advocated a focus on black working class and their collective consciousness. He offered Marxist solutions to African-American problems. He asks, shall Negro writing be for the Negro masses molding the lives and consciousness of those masses toward new goals, or shall it continue begging the question of the Negro's humanity? For Wright, the serious responsibility of the African American writer is to do nothing less than to create values by which his race is to struggle, live, and die. Do you agree? As you read Wright's selections, especially the chapters from Black Boy, Ponder the following themes, poverty and impact of migration on the lives of ordinary black citizens, economic and social injustices blacks endure, especially females, political and ideological perspectives of the left, including shortcomings of the 1940s U.S. Communist Party, relationships, African American illiteracy and importance of education, Blend of autobiographical narration with urban realism, sociological determinism, literary naturalism, and Marxist tenets. In what ways does Chapter 13 of Black Boy allude to the importance of education in previous African American literature, such as the acquisition and importance of literacy in antebellum and postbellum slave narratives? Concluding the paragraph, the narrator states, I had a new hunger. For what do you think the narrator hungers at this point in his education? Again in Chapter 13 of Black Boy, the narrator asserts, I now knew what being a Negro meant. Explain what the narrator means. Do you think being African American means the same thing today? On what do you base your answer? In Chapter 16 of Black Boy, what does Wright gain by calling attention to the victimization of poor, unlettered blacks, especially women? Hansberry's play, A Raisin in the Sun, is the next and final piece we will use to illustrate this historical period of African-American literature. This is a popular, if not the most popular, African-American play. It was published in 1959 and became an instant hit. It won the New York Drama Critics Award as Best Play of the Year, ran for 538 performances, is translated into over 30 languages, is adapted into film, and paved the way for the black theater movement of that decade. It holds the record as the longest-running Broadway play by an African-American. The play was originally titled The Crystal Stair*, a line taken from Hughes's poem Mother to Son. Read this poem. Hansberry later changed the title to A Raisin in the Sun, also a line taken from Hughes's poem Harlem. These suggest how Hughes and the Harlem Renaissance influenced Hansberry. Read Harlem and consider ways that Hansberry's play answers the questions Hughes's poem asks read the play in the context of the poem mother to son then in the context of the poem harlem and explain how the interpretation of the play shifts depending on which poem one sees as the focus of or influence on the play the play is a modernist classic synthesis of the schools of drama what is meant by this is that the play combines all four schools of drama which are the school of realism which focuses on verisimilitude. The School of Symbolism, which represents meaning on both literal and deeper levels. The School of Expressionism, which focuses on presenting experiences, details, and utterances in such a way as to convey strong emotions, fears, dreams, and memories. And finally, the School of Epic Realism, which communicates the idea that a play is not life, and therefore any presentation, both realistic and non-realistic, can be of legitimate use. Hansberry's play is realistic in many ways. It has a realistic historical and physical setting. It captures the civil rights concerns of the time and dramatizes the struggles and frustrations of a multi-generational African-American working-class family living in a cramped apartment on Chicago's South Side. Research the various historical events of the civil rights era in which the play is situated, and review the play's relevance to such landmark developments as Hansberry's own family's Supreme Court case of Hansberry v. Lee, which ultimately upheld the family's right to live in an all-white neighborhood. During this time of the Second Great Migration, how does Hansberry's play expand the theme of migration? The realistic setting influences characters and is partly the cause of the heated argument as to how to spend the $10,000 insurance money paid on the death of Walter Sr. The debate reveals fundamental gendered and generational perspectives, as well as economic dilemmas and differences in values and relationships. Analyze each character's position and evaluate how interpretation of the play shifts depending on each character's perspective. Who do you agree with? Note how the setting is also the source of Ruth's consideration of abortion. That's representation of a harsher realism and therefore naturalistic. The play is symbolic as well. What does the family's apartment symbolize? What does the name beneath us suggest and how does it communicate ideas about the portrayal and treatment of women in the play? What does Mama's feeble little plant that she keeps watering symbolize? Trace this motif in the play. Mama says she wants a place with a lot of sunshine where she can plant a garden where this plant can grow. What does this mean metaphorically? Note how plant, new house, and garden merge to create a dream of a hopeful future. How is Mama stereotypical of the figure of the strong black woman? How does Asagai symbolize relationship between African-Americans and continental Africans? Consider how Hansberry may be using other characters, such as Travis and George, symbolically. In addition to realism and symbolism, the play uses expressionism extensively. Characters are strongly opinionated, and they imbue their speech and actions with strong emotions. Walter talks so much about money with immense passion. He thinks money is life. It consumes and makes him restless. Likewise, Benita is strong-willed and represents the so-called silent generation of the 1950s, longing for freedom. She rebels against typical gender and racial roles and expectations. She crosses Mama's red line when she questions the existence of God, an idea Mama will not tolerate in her house, where, according to her, there is still God. To finish the discussion of the play's synthesis of the schools of drama, the play uses epic realism and is theatrical in many ways. The name-calling, insults, and seeming bunch of characters running their mouths against each other seem like playing the dozens, a form of signifying. As well, techniques used by epic realists, such as stage directions, are used generously to shed light on characters and create mood and atmosphere. The synthesis of all four schools of drama makes the play unequivocally modernist. One theme that unites all these authors is the theme of the city, and studying their works during this period provides ample ammunition for considering questions such as these. How does the city environment shape people differently than a rural or small town environment? Are the influences and consequences of urban environment different for African Americans than for other Americans? How is the city depicted differently or similarly in the three different genres of poetry, fiction, and drama? What themes do geography, class, ideology, and gender communicate in the works of these authors? You may find some of the conclusions ironic. The theme of the city in these works suggests that the urban north that most people from the rural south trekked to is perhaps no better, or only a slight, improvement.